and welcome to episode three of the Fat-Tailed Thoughts podcast. I'm your co-host, Stephen Dickens, and I'm joined, as always, by my dear friend, Jared. Welcome to the show, Jared. This is going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to this. Good morning, Stephen. This is going to be fun. This, yeah. this, this gets into the weeds. Yeah, this is, this is, I'm going to have to hang on by my fingernails for this oh, one. This I is going know. to be interesting. I, th- I think we're going to be all right. That's the goal of this, Stephen. So what are we talking about this week? What's the show? So we're, we're, we're going to go deep, deep, deep on ETS. And, and, and I want to be clear, Stephen, because we're actually in a foreshadow. We're going to do another episode on ETS next week, another letter on ETS. This week, we're really just trying to get grounded. It, it's, we we kind of take them for granted today. Um, it's a big industry, and what we'll get into all of that. Um, it, there are a lot of moving parts once you get under the covers. And, and actually, if we go back through history, Stephen, th- this wasn't just like, a, hey, ETFs, hooray. This was years and years and years of development, innovation, regulatory change, huge dollars invested. And all of a sudden, we get this innovative thing. And to be honest, Stephen, it was a flop when it first came out. It took a number of years for it to build up into what it is today. And that's a super exciting story. We'll get into the history. We'll get into how they actually work. And we'll start to foreshadow where we're going next week, starting about the looking at the bigger market now. So, so let's just start with some of the real fundamentals, the basics. We're already throwing acronyms out to people <laughs> and assuming that they know them. ETF. Let's start with the definition. What is this thing and why should we care? So, so an ETF is an exchange-traded fund. And that actually, that, that term gives you a lot of insight into what this thing is. Um, the, the first thing, and I hit this in my letter, um, if, you, if you're ever texting somebody enough, um, it will autocorrect to WTF at some point. Just give a fair warning to the viewers here. Is that um, is that kind of Apple and Samsung trying to tell us something? I, know, yeah, is, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to weigh in on that one, <laughs> um, but I I did for for so the readers I did autocorrect the entire uh, proper correct the entire letter and got rid of all of those. So I think they're all all correct now. Any WTFs um, are purposeful in the letter? Is that what? You're yes, that's exactly right. The only ones that are in there are there on purpose. <laughs> but when we say exchange traded fund. Um, but just break that one down. And, and for the reader, for the readers and for the listeners, if you go online and you look up, um, say, Fidelity, for instance, you look up uh, State Street's definition of an ETF, many of them are wrong. Um, that was very, very surprising to me. And what we'll hit on that. So exchange traded is the first piece of this. So this is something that like stocks that you might buy, Apple or Tesla or what, hap- what have you, it has a ticker that 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 short three-letter, four-letter uh, code, and you buy it on an exchange. Now, an exchange, by its definition, most of the time you're engaged in the secondary market. So when you and I, Stephen, buy shares of Apple, we're not buying them from Apple. We're buying them from another owner. Maybe you're selling and I'm buying, or I'm buying and you're selling. It's the secondary market among existing owners, not the actual issuer, the underlying company, or in this case, the fund. So exchange traded. Second thing is this is a fund. A fund is a pooled investment vehicle. And strictly speaking, an exchange traded fund, an ETF, is issued under what's called the Investment Act of 1940. Now, we, we, we tend to shorten that. We call it a 40 Act. And more formally, we would call this a 40 Act fund. 
So when I say that the definitions you might find online, and we'll talk about this in other places, are wrong, oftentimes they'll say ETFs hold commodities and they hold currencies and they hold all these other things. They don't. A 40-act fund, by its very definition, the way the regulation is written, a 40-act fund does almost all of its business in securities, things like stocks, things like bonds, currencies, commodities, by their very definition, Stephen, they're not securities. So what you have is you have this bigger arena of what we would call exchange-traded products. You might see the acronym ETP occasionally. Those exchange-traded products include things that look like ETFs, but are issued under, say, the Securities Act of 1933, and they may actually hold currencies, commodities, what have you. But while that, that may not always make a difference to the everyday investor, it can, and, and we, we, uh, we may go into that either today or in a subsequent uh, call, um, it's critical in terms of the investor protections. There's a lot of stuff baked into the 40 Act that in terms of how it's sold, commissions that can come out, how you get access to the product, those are protections you do not have when something's issued under the uh, Securities Act of 33. So you've mentioned 33 and you mentioned 40. Let's go down history lane a little bit. And why were the, why was that regulation put in place? Obviously, huge market crash in 29. I'm assuming it's related to protecting investors following that crash but let's just go let's wind the clock back a little because i think some of the history ultimately through mutual funds to where we are today is going to be interesting so sort of talk us through that chronological timeline a little uh, steve i'd love to this stuff is is super super interesting um we'll, we'll hit on the high level i mean books have been written about this uh so let, let's back all the way up pre-crash of 1929 1924, the first mutual fund is created. And actually, just to, to, to get under the covers here, the, first off, that mutual fund invest, uh, created a Massachusetts trust in, in, uh, in 1924, still exists today. Unbelievably, the custodian for that mutual fund, the person actually holding the underlying equities and such, was State Street. State Street very much still exists today and will feature quite prominently. Fast forward to 1993, State Street is behind not technically the first ETF, but the first ETF to really make it big. They're the second ETF they launched two months after the first. So just kind of giving the, the listeners the first mover advantage here, the longevity of these companies, the, the value of having that distribution arm. I mean, it's unbelievable the, 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 uh, the companies that have been built here and their ability to continue to service the market over time. But let's, let's jump back. We're, we're, we jumped over about 70 years of really cool stuff there. So I'm glad you noticed because I was watching you. I was watching you carefully. I was going to take you there. I'm the, I'm the voice of the listener here, so I'm going to keep you on it. Yeah, I'm getting too excited. So, so 1924, we get the first mutual fund. 
that was really a, a an innovation on top of we had had trusts for a couple hundred years before that. Now, the mutual fund is, is quite interesting. Firstly, it's a pooled investment vehicle, meaning that you don't own individual shares. You own proportional rights to a bucket of money. Uh, so if, it, if it's $1,000 and you put in 100, you own 10% of that thing, not specific shares. The way a mutual fund works is that investors engage directly with the mutual fund. So let me explain what I mean by that. Each day at the end of day, the mutual fund tallies up how much all the underlying securities it owns, say, 10 stocks, it covers the S&P 500, whatever it's doing, it tallies up the value of its underlying holdings. That's called the net asset value. You'll see the term NAV shortened to. It just means the value of the bucket of stuff. If you as an investor say, hey, mutual fund, I want to buy, say, $100 worth. At the end of the day, they go, okay, we tallied it up. The, our total holdings are worth $500. We are going to issue you another what's then 20%. And we sell that to you. We take your $100. We go and we buy additional securities. We bring the value of the fund up to the, uh, whatever, now 600 If you sell your mutual fund ownings, you sell it directly back to the mutual fund, meaning you sell them your 10% interest or whatever it is. They At the end of the day, they go, okay, 10% is worth this amount based on the NAV, and they send you back cash. So you're engaging one-on-one -on -one with that mutual fund each time you're buying and selling things. And to be clear, Stephen, the fund is a legal vehicle. It's a company onto itself. It has a management team. It has advisors. There's all these wrappers around it. But it's a, you can think of, even though a fund is just a bucket of money, a basket, it's actually technically its own standalone company. So that's mechanically how it works. The challenge is, without a lot of investor protections in place, you can imagine how this might go terribly wrong. They might make up what the NAV is. They might just forget to do it at the end of the day. They might tell you they're invested in one thing, but invest in another thing. They may try and sell you snake oil through somebody who massively marks up the price and then takes huge commissions without telling you. You think you're getting $100 worth, but you're only getting $30 worth because somebody took a $70 commission. I mean, there are a whole bunch of ways to abuse this. And needless to say, in the boom times of going into 1929, we kind of saw every stripe, variety, and flavor of abusing investors. So crash of 1929 happens. The, we don't really have the regulatory apparatus that we do today. Congress steps in, the state level regulators step in, they go, all right, we, we, we need somebody to play traffic cop here, to start protecting investors, to start requiring disclosures, say, hey, this is what we're actually doing, to start having uh, reporting requirements. Hey, you need to tell them on a certain basis. So over the subsequent decade or so after 1929, we get a series of regulations Securities Act of 1933, Investments Act of 1940, Investors Act of 1940. We get a series of these that start at what I would call the lowest level. How do we prevent 
fraud and shenanigans on a per security basis, the individual equity, stocks, bonds, et cetera. And then over time, build up and say, okay, how do we prevent fraud at the exchange level? How do we prevent fraud at the investment manager level? How do we do it again at the investment company level? And it builds and builds and builds. And that really, from a regulatory standpoint, is the bedrock on which markets today are built. So we've kind of gone through mutual funds, 1924. We've gone through the crash. We've gone through the subsequent regulation after the crash. Talk me through the sort of 50s and 60s where we start to move from and then how we how ultimately we move from mutual funds through into ETFs in the early days of ETFs. I cannot recommend highly enough go read John Brooks's Go Go Years. The 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 taking a look back to what happened in the 60s. It's th- this Stephen, this is a wild story. You have to think, coming out of uh, the crash of 29, we then move into World War, the Great Depression, we move into World War II. Folks, to, not to abuse the term, but folks are coming out of the war in, in 44, 45, 46. They are shell-shocked, and it quite literally in, in many cases, but still the hangover um, from the 20s and from the 30s is very much still in place. That seems to have all been forgotten come the 60s. Um, there were jokes, and, and, and I'm not going to make too many analogies today to today, but there were jokes in the 60s that the way to make money was to find a young person who knew nothing, give them all your money, because people were simply too old to understand how the market works today. I think we've got a bit of that hubris now going on in crypto, but let, that's another whole big topic, so let's not go it's down that route. take us down a bit of a <laughs> exactly. You can't. You certainly can find analogies, and it's a wonderful time to learn about. But among the innovations that happen uh, during the '60s is the mutual fund, and, and let me explain why and how. We have what what I would call the rise of the retail investor during the '60s. Prior to 1950, just around five percent of the country was invested in stocks. We don't have things like 401ks. We don't really have things. Um, the I, uh, IRAs and whatnot don't come around till uh, the 70s. Uh, your Roth IRA, by the way, doesn't come around till 2004, I believe. I mean, the, the stuff we take for granted simply isn't there. Most of what's, what's there are pensions. Well, pensions pay out cash. You're not, you don't really have a nest egg that you're looking to invest in the stock market. Well, we get this unbelievable sales effort throughout the 60s married with mutual funds. Now, why is that happening? Well, the sales effort from brokers is built around, hey, mom and pop, hey, ordinary person. We've got this stock market that can give you a share of America's future. If you want to bet on America doing better, you're going to bet on the companies making money they're going to rise in value. You should share in that upside. Now, that's a really compelling vision. And this is at a time when the country is just doing phenomenally well. We get the, the, the post-World War II boom. Well, if you're an ordinary investor and you're sold that vision, go, that's awesome. But I don't know anything about these companies. I don't know anything about investing. This isn't, again, saying this isn't, you can't go online at this point. You're doing this over the phone. There's some, you've, 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 probably haven't left your state, there's some random 
person in a suit out in Wall Street who's going to be managing your how how on earth do you understand what's going on? Well, step in the mutual fund manager as opposed to you having to pick the individual stocks and bonds and such, find the new hot thing, the tip of the week that's going to make it big for you. You can pay a manager who's in the know, who's an expert, who's a professional, and they, for just a small fee, will manage your money, will manage your money on your behalf. I, I think you've missed your calling, Jared. After that segment, I <laughs> want to buy a mutual fund from you. <laughs> I mean, I think you could be a mutual f- You missed your decade, I think, between the 50s and 60s. You should have been a mutual fund salesperson. The, the, the only, I, I was going to say that I do have the cocktail part of that decade down real well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the Mad Men sort of generation, what is it, mid-50s to sort of late 60s? I, I think I've, I've got to work time. on the well-fitting suits, though. That yeah, part yeah. I'm, still, I'm yeah. still struggling with. Um, but it, it's it's this extraordinary sales effort, primarily from brokers who get this distribution. They get uh, they get tremendous commissions for selling these mutual funds. At that time, by the way, a mutual fund, if it did well, was still allowed to sell out, and the manager could get paid on that. We've since prevented the, some of those shenanigans. So. What we have through the 60s is we have a bunch of mutual fund managers who are, I was going to say slowly but steadily, but in many cases that wasn't true, quite rapidly growing their book of business. Now, remember how a mutual fund manager gets paid. They get paid based on assets under management. So you don't, as long as the book's growing, even if you're not good, you get paid more. That's not always the best incentive. Critically, this is a time where we don't we don't have CNBC. We don't have the 24-hour news cycle of what the stock market's doing. So you, you're getting your quarterly statement in the mail about how your mutual fund did. You probably don't have access to information that says, how did the overall market do? What is the opportunity cost of being with this manager versus that manager? So there's a, there's a huge lack of information, which makes that sales effort, which makes that ability to engage the investor on all of the wonderful things you're doing as a mutual fund manager, frankly, much, much easier, which and that, even as you can the, imagine. The classic sort saw, of, I'm assuming the classic rising tide raises all boats. That's exactly you know, right. When you've not got that price exposure, you've got that not got the transparency that the internet and Robin Hood and Reddit and, you know, all the different sources of information. If you're getting your quarterly statement through, maybe you're reading the financial section in the New York times on a, on a Sunday, those are your sort of pretty much your two data points and you look at your statement and there's more money in it than there was last quarter. Do you just stay where you are and keep going? I suppose is the is the thought pro, prevailing thought process here. Correct. And what happens, Stephen, is we find out to 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 steal a wonderful expression, we find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. So the market continues to go up into the mid sixties. Um, it then actually, on an inflation adjusted basis, does flatline starting in sixty six. But we don't see the real blow up till uh, till 68, 69. Um, now, for, for a different topic, I, I wrote a letter a, a number of weeks ago. We actually have a complete breakdown of the infrastructure 
um, for how the stock market, how exchanges and whatnot work at this time as well, to the point where we were shutting down uh, what was then the largest stock exchange, the American Stock Exchange, one day a week. And we were taking half days on Wednesdays just to deal with all the paperwork backlog. Stephen, at one month, I believe it was January of 69, 25% of all trades submitted to the exchange simply failed to go through. I mean, this is this, by the way, if you've ever heard DTCC, we take for granted now how stocks just you, you push a button, money leaves your account, stocks move in, or you push a button and stocks leave and money moves back in. This all comes out of this massive a crash with a massive breakdown of the infrastructure that all got built on the back of the end of this era. Um, among the things that also comes out of this era, Stephen, is mutual funds kind of lose their luster. It turns out that when you lose a bunch of the investors' money, that lack of access to other information, say how the overall market's doing, that cuts both ways. Yeah, it, it was great when you saw month over month over month as the amounts went up, but now you're seeing month over month over month, or rather quarter over quarter, the amounts in your account are going down and you're still paying big fees. So we've got a lot to cover here, Jared. We're still only up to the 70s and we're 21 minutes in. Well, Let's well, start to move through from sort of the end of the mutual funds being the sort of darlings through to the start of the ETFs coming through. Because I think we've got a couple of big topics still to go. So let's let's kind of round out the history lesson in the next couple of minutes and then we'll go forward from there. So we have a bit of a, from a general innovation standpoint, we have a bit of a dead period in the 70s. I mean, similar to, to what happened after uh, the crash of 29, we, we, it's not sexy. Folks don't want to put their money in, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. It's a bit of a dead period. Uh, in fact, the, the stock market on an inflation-adjusted basis flatlines between 66 and I believe it's 82. Um, I mean, it's really quite dead. If we look forward to the 80s, we get this brilliant idea of, in, of uh, portfolio insurance. And what the idea there is, is that you can sell futures against an index. And we'll hit on that in a sec. What that allows you as the stock market falls to basically cover some of those losses. Well, unfortunately, Stephen, we find out in the crash of 87, portfolio insurance might work well in isolation, <laughs> debatable. But when everybody does it, it just drives the market down faster. So completely and utterly discredited. Now, why are we hitting on portfolio insurance here? It highlights two really important things that, that happened under the covers. One, indexes. Indexes get invented during the 70s. They don't really take off yet. But the mutual fund is repurposed as opposed to being, hey, investor, investment manager with expertise, the mutual fund says, hey, what if I could just cover the entire market, like the S&P 500, do so at a really low fee that's pioneered by Wells Fargo, that's really been brought to fame by John Bogle um, in 1975. Stephen, this is the start of the quote unquote passive investor. Um, it takes years for this to take off. Innovation number one. Innovation number two, the same guys, uh, the same fund that created portfolio insurance as professors first and then as investment managers, crash of 87, they're completely discredited. 
they need to figure out something else to do. Their, their assets under management, Stephen, went from $5 billion down to $750 million. I mean, they lost most of their investors' money, either through redemptions or the market crash. They are the ones who come up with the ETF structure. Now, we're going to cut, cut short a bit of the history here, but note that what they come up with is based on research from 1975 that was considered too complex. They then attempt to simplify it down. They invest $5 million of their own money, roughly adjusted to $12 million in today's terms. I mean, this is an 18-person firm. That's a heck of a lot of money. Starting in 1989, they start engaging the SEC and the, the, then regu the major uh, regulator, and they say, hey, we've got this idea for a new instrument. And the SEC effectively says, go away. <laughs> like, we, we, we've had enough of this. It takes them five rounds of submissions and a full hearing, reworking it, reworking it, reworking it before the SEC finally says, absolutely, let's go. We'll, we'll, we'll allow you um, to, to launch the product. They say, great, the, that they get that approval in, in late 91, early 92. They say, we're, they told the SEC, we're going to raise $2 billion to launch this thing. They barely scrape by raising $1 billion. Which just, just for, for clarity, if you tell the regulator you're going to raise $2 billion and you raise $1 billion, you have to go back to the regulator and get approval again and go, okay, now fine, we're going to launch at $1 billion. So they get approval. They launch in, in uh, late 1992, I believe November 1992. The product is wildly complex. Tons of moving parts. You've got options. You got equities. You got bonds. You got you have all these moving parts. But deep down in the bowels of this thing, Stephen, is an ETF exactly as we would understand it today. And in fact, there are two ETFs: one that's covering the S and P 500, and a second one that's coming covering money market mutual funds. It's a wild innovation. Now, while they were basically making a mess of this whole thing, their partner. American Stock Exchange went, this is really cool. I think there's something here. I don't think this is how it should be done. They go and engage State Street, again, the, the innovators in 1924, and say, hey, State Street, there's this really cool nugget buried deep within this thing. How would you guys like to go and be the issuer and actually go launch it? So just three or four months after the initial kind of this big mess, it was called a super trust launch in 92, State Street launches what is truly the first standalone ETF. That launches in early 1993. It launches with just $11 million to start. Today, we call that thing the spider. Trades under ticker SPY. That remains the largest ETF today by by many hundreds of millions of dollars. It's just shy of $500 billion under management. It covers the S&P 500. I mean, talk about a first mover advantage here, Steve. They so got this, is the, this is the OG. This is the OG of the ETF market. This is the, the big daddy in the market. I'm invested in it for disclosure for our listeners. You, you, I think most everybody is somehow, yeah. some way. It's, it's, this is 
absolutely awesome. And this, it does take some time for it to take off. It takes time to get adoption. There, there's a huge amount, like we talked about the mutual funds, that whole distribution. How do you get brokers interested? How do you get more? There's a lot of stuff that has to happen for it to build up. But we'll, we'll just we'll kind of hit you with a punchline. From the $11 million launch in 1993, today, just shy of 30 years later, it's a six and a half trillion dollar industry. I mean, that is that is just mind-blowingly large. We went from passive investing being, eh, okay, and so on, to almost half the market. As of 2019, 45% of the assets in the market are passively invested. And a huge proportion of those are in ETFs like the spider. It's, Stephen, this is an unbelievable success story, but it took all those years of innovation from the regulators, from the structure, from the partners in order to get there. This was by no means an overnight success story. We've got a couple of minutes left and three hours worth of stuff to talk about. Um, this is the joy of my job, listeners. I've got to, I've got to con- get Jared to condense <laughs> what is a three-minute read into a half an hour podcast um so where do we want to go next from the last two three minutes there's let's lots left about- in the letter but let's 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 try to bring this home and sort of summarize up we've done a great job i think of explaining the etf concept we've gone through the history that kind of underlays how this innovative product was bungled event event first off and finally ended up where it is now and then as you say formed the bedrock of a 6.5 trillion it's you know huge 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 market what's the what's the sort of bring this home and some of some of the final points here? Let, let, let's head on the structure how this thing actually works because we need to differentiate it from the broader mutual fund industry and i think Stephen, that'll set us up well for for next week's conversation so so remember what we said at the beginning this is an exchange traded fund Mutual funds, by their definition, we're going to ignore some recent innovations. There's some hybrid stuff going on. Traditional mutual funds are not exchange traded. You engage with the exchange, with the mutual fund when you buy and sell. In ETF, you're engaging with other owners like you and me. So the question is, if it's not, if it's exchange traded, how does it go and manage the underlying portfolio? How does it create and destroy ETF shares. What well, turns out under the covers, there's two markets going on, Stephen. There's the market you and I engage with as owners of the ETF shares in the secondary market listed on whatever exchange, in the case of the spider on the New York Stock Exchange. There's actually a separate primary market. It's only accessible to authorized participants. Those are named and and a officially signed with the ETF issuer. Those authorized participants are the folks you would expect. It's HSBC, it's Goldman, it's Navar, it's the big boys. They engage with the underlying ETF issuer when they want to create ETF shares. They either send cash or they send a basket of securities to the ETF issuer and the ETF issuer sends them back ETF shares. Basket of securities here, meaning the ETF issuer says one ETF share has is effectively made up of 
uh, 10 Apple shares and three Microsoft and four Ford and whatever it is, the, the authorized participant can send that basket to the issuer and get back ETF shares. In order to redeem, the authorized participant sends the ETF shares back and the issuer sends either cash or the underlying securities back to the authorized participant. Now, why would they do this? Well, if the value of the ETF is worth more than the value of the underlying securities, the authorized participant can make money by sending the securities to the ETF, getting the ETF and selling it. The reverse is also true. If it trades below, they can send the ETF back to the issuer, get back the securities and then go sell those. That authorized participant, when they get those ETF shares, they then sell them on the secondary market, which is how you and I get access. Sounds like uh, the classic old boys club making money whichever way the industry flows. But hey, I'm just a cynic. So it's, it, but it's it, actually, it, it's to, to us, it's hugely beneficial. They do mm -hmm. make good money off this. Um, it's, it, there are many billions that flow around in revenue just from those operations and, and kind of the surrounding trading. But there's a, there's a couple massive benefits, Stephen, to you and me. Um, because most ETFs are passively managed and they're indexed like an index mutual fund, the cost of managing that is pretty low. But you get two more things out of the ETF that you don't get out of mutual funds, which means on average they have less than half the fees of a mutual fund. Firstly, because you and I are buying and selling with each other, as opposed to engaging the ETF issuer, they don't have to have all those operations in order to redeem and burn. it's a mess. It takes people, it takes time, it takes energy. That turns into fees. Well, if you push that to an exchange, you have specialist market makers, you have the exchange handle that. They've got much better, much more specialized infrastructure and processes that can keep the fees much lower. So that's one. Second one, capital gains. And this turns out to be huge over time. When you and I say we were in a mutual fund, buy and sell shares of the mutual fund with the mutual fund issuer in order for the issuer to get the cash to send back to us, they have to go sell securities. Well, oftentimes when they sell the underlying securities, they're going to recognize a gain if the price, if the value had gone up. That gain legally has to be passed on to all of the investors at the end of the year. That stinks. What it means is that the more activity there is redeeming mutual fund shares, the more likelihood you're going to have of, of capital gains. That's on top of the management fees you're already getting charged. Because we've relegated the secondary trading, the, the trading between you and me to the secondary market with ETFs, less likelihood of capital gains. That's great. And secondly, remember I told you the authorized participant, when they go and redeem the ETF shares, the ETF issuer can either send them cash or send them the securities. Well, Stephen, if they send them the securities rather than selling them and sending them cash, there's no sale. There's no capital gain there. What it means is that most passive ETFs, they're rarely capital gains events. And this can end up being absolutely massive over time. And for the listeners, if you want to look into this, you can, at the end of the year, the, when, when they're required to pass these on, go take a look at something like the spider 
which is an ETF managing the S&P 500, and go look up a mutual fund, an indexed mutual fund that's also doing similar management. And you can go look at the capital gains events that happen with the mutual fund and do not happen with the ETF. And the value of that simply cannot be overstated. And this comes back to us as the people buying them as just reduced fees. We're getting closer to the actual value of the underlying basket. And it's just good news for us as market participants. So my cynical comments earlier on, actually, this is structurally working out for me as an individual investor who wants to get invested into this ETF. Correct. And and you're right to be cynical. Not The, the authorized participants, they're not doing this because they want to feel good and warm and fuzzy. They're doing it because they make money doing it. And with a $6.5 trillion industry, even teeny, teeny discrepancies in price between the ETF and the underlying securities, over time at high volume, you can make lots and lots of money. Now, we're, we're going to tip our hat to next week here. Those authorized participants often do a lot more than just that, Stephen. Because these things are exchange traded, you can also go in, say, issue options against them. You can issue all types of derivative contracts against the underlying ETF. That turns out to be a very lucrative business to be in. And oftentimes, you'll see many multiples the amount of trading volume in the derivatives market as you do in the underlying ETF market. But that's next week's topic. And that's where I think I'm going to have to – we're seven minutes over. I think we managed to fit probably 100 years' worth of financial innovation, <laughs> a couple of different huge market products like mutual funds and ETFs into that 37 minutes. So we didn't do too bad. Thank you for bearing with us, listeners. My name's Stephen Dickens. You've been listening to me and Jared Clee on the Fat-Tailed Thoughts podcast. We're still relatively new. This is still episode three please click and subscribe. It really, really helps. It'll help us with the rankings and help us move us through. Also subscribe to the newsletter on uh, Substack, the Fat-Tailed Thoughts newsletter. That's where you'll get the deep dive on the subjects and what we um, summarize here on the podcast. We're going to be back next week talking about ETFs part two. Thank you for joining us.